welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode 722, and for those of you who think you've just jumped into some kind of time machine, this is Martin Darlington, and I'm joining regular host Richard Jowett all the way from Qatar, where I was able to watch nearly all the racing this weekend. Richard, great to be back with you. Martin, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Just in case people are a little bit confused, just to clarify, Jim is on holiday this week and we were a little bit unsure as to timings and more so connectivity at the presumably campsite where he's staying because I think he's camping this week. So yeah, super sub Qatari flyboy Martin is back on the show and I'm sure lots of people will be very happy to hear your voice, sir. Well, me more than anyone else. I do like (laughs) the sound of my own voice, which long-term listeners will be very familiar with. Yeah. So, wow, what an opening. We've got a lot to talk about, haven't we? So just in the interest of brevity, we'll dispense with the usual kind of well there isn't really much news to talk about in other series anyway there's a bit of bsb testing going on at the moment i was actually going to be at silverstone today but the weather here is so frightful that i decided not to bother because i don't think there'll be a great deal of running it's been tracking it down pretty much for the last week <laughs> and it looks like yes. it's going to do the same for the next couple of weeks so yeah i thought we'd crack on and get Porter mail reviewed and out to the listeners because boy what a weekend that was but before we just get into it martin just one quick thing i do want to say we went through subscribers on the last show with Jim last week. Yeah. That's something we're going to stay on top of. And we've got some plans, as I keep alluding to. Nothing firm yet, but should have some more news in terms of what we're going to be doing for subscribers. We've got a new Patreon. I'm not sure if it's Dennis Kindig or Kinditch. Perhaps you could let me know, Dennis, how to phonetically get that correct. But Dennis has come on as a Patreon, which is great. So thanks, Dennis. Great to have you on board. And with that being said, Martin, I think we've got to get into the race action, haven't we? So let's yeah. start off as we traditionally do, albeit the programme is a little bit disrupted now because of the change of format with the sprint coming in. But we're going to start off with Moto3. So shall I just give a very brief synopsis of the race as I saw it? And then we'll pick up on a few key things. Yeah, I didn't get to watch this live. I, I watched it on catch up and because I was squeezing that between watching the Moto2 race live and the MotoGP, I kind of watched it a bit on fast forward. Yeah, I mean, as always, the Moto3 race was, you know, lap for lap, the best race of the weekend in terms of pure action. And that's normally the case, isn't it? But nothing too much to highlight, I think, through the practices and qualifying sessions. The front row, as qualifying two ended, was uh, Sasaki was on the pole. This new young Spanish hotshot, Jose Antonio Rueda, which I think is a name that we're going to be hearing a great deal about, very much shades of Pedro Acosta there. And very pleasingly, I think, certainly for our friends in Australia, uh, Joel Kelso made onto the front row of the grid and looks pretty good on that new team so what happened in the race well Onchu uh, got stranded on the grid not sure if he stalled or had a technical problem with the bike but he ended up starting from the pit lane which was a great shame bit of an ominous start really for Onchu isn't it he doesn't have a great deal of luck and of course he's switched from Tech 3 over to the Akiayo Moto3 squad so I don't know if you've got any thoughts on Dennis Onchu I mean what are your expectations Martin this year I expected him to move up because of his size he's so tall I don't know if he's six foot yet but he's one of the tallest riders on that grid and he'd said I think I'm too big for these bikes. We know, famously, Akiaya will not accept that as an excuse. I think possibly KTM have sent him to that team saying, look, go to Akiaya. If he can't make you win, then it's probably you, not yeah. the size or the bike or anything. We saw that. I mean, he had complaints from Remy Gardner. He said, Chuck, get on with it. And he turned him into a world champion at Moto2. So we know that Akiaya has such a track record of getting the best out of people. And I mean, looking at his pace, Dennis Onchu finished 10th. Starting from pit lane in Moto3, 
we know it's possible because yeah. of the way that class tends to bunch up, but it's still pretty impressive to get up to 10. So I do expect big things from him. For me, the standout, the surprise, and it started when they were, before the weekend's action started, they were asking the MotoGP riders to give their predictions of who was going to win. Obviously, most of them predict themselves for the MotoGP class, but they said Diogo Moreira, this Brazilian kid who we saw last year, some flashes of brilliance, but I don't think he even got on the podium. He certainly didn't win a race. He didn't, no. And yet, he's looking pretty good. Holgado's gone into Tectoire KTM and obviously won the race and looked very good. So, yeah, I think, again, Moto3 is going to be really open. You know, it will be the ones who can consistently come top six who will be the title contenders, even if they don't necessarily win all the races. Yeah. I mean, as you say, Don you did go on to finish 10th. And given that nobody that I can recall crashed out of the leading pack, that was a hell of a result, really. It had sort of shades of the Pedro Acosta Qatar from a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, we only had four five non-finishers which for Moto3 is pretty surprising yeah yeah great start from Joel Kelso who I said was on third on the grid he was looking good in the early running unfortunately for the new kid uh, Rueda he had a bit of a poor getaway but the guy that looked strong right from the get-go as you say Martin was Danny Holgado now interestingly he was well I don't want to say dropped exactly but he was in Akiyo squad last year so him and Dennis Onchu have effectively swapped places so the fact that Onchu had his customary bit of bad luck and Holgado went on to win on the tech three or tech two as you like to call them historically uh, I mean that's a little bit of a tough one for Onchu to take I should think given that that was the bike yeah. that he was riding last year so it's funny fate I suppose and Holgado probably feels vindicated in his complaints about being what is seen as being relegated yeah but we do know there have been riders before who've gone on to be successful who didn't work with uh, with Akiyo's techniques and with Akiyo himself so although his record is absolutely phenomenal I don't think there's another um, rider coach at Moto2 or Moto3 who's had the same success no. you know rider coach team boss yeah it's not going to work for everyone it's possible that Holgado will find the softer, or not softer, but more quirky approach of Tectoire and Guy Coulon and the like is going to suit him better. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he's just learned, or maybe he just got lucky. A bit like you said with uh, Diego, or sorry, Diego Moreira. It's a crucial second year, isn't it, after that rookie season? Yeah. I mean, Holgado actually had a pretty decent year last year and he broke his leg at some point. So, I mean, that re- was reflected in his final position in the championship that we talked about when we did the review a few weeks back with Jim. But but Marrera, as I recall, was, and I'm talking last year, was Maverick Vinales' tip for the title. Right. Never really quite came through on that. And as you say, he didn't get a podium last year, but certainly there was lots of flashes of brilliance. But in terms of Akiyo and riders that haven't necessarily done quite as much as was expected, I mean, a classic example would be Jama Masia, who, in the context of Sunday's race, had a pretty poor start, but would actually go on and find his way through ultimately. I think he finished about fifth or sixth. We'll check fifth, in a moment. Yeah. yeah. And he led at one point, I think. Typical Moto3, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. multiple lead changes across the laps and just a frantic... I mean, I wrote down in my notes when I was watching it, between laps, I think, 9 stroke 10 and laps 12 to 13, those were three of the best laps of Moto3 I've ever seen in terms of just the sheer precision, controlled aggression and just general madness that we've come to well, expect. Talking of controlled aggression, David Munoz seems to be starting this season the way he finished last. Yeah. He is a little bit of a potential wrecking ball and we'll come back to the wrecking ball theme later, obviously, when we talk about Moto2. <laughs> But weirdly, considering he would finish sixth, if I had to pick a title contender for me out that first weekend, I think I'd say Yumi Sasaki. It's like he's got the consistency of Ayaguro 
I know Iger chucked it up the road a couple of times last year, but he's also got that slight killer instinct, I think. I expect him to be closer to the front. And the theme we'll return to, I think, Portimao is an extraordinary racetrack. It is not usual. There's so much elevation change. I think only Kyalami has more, and we haven't been going there for years now. And they all did a test there. Motor 2 Mate 3 a week ago, Motor GP two weeks ago. So that kind of irons out the differences, which means you have to go balls out just to try and make a difference because no one has picked a bad setting. In fact, I mean, the only ones who seem to be coming there with the dire expectations was KTM. And they, according to Jack Miller, they did something with the electronics and sorted it. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and talk Mm. about GP. But I do think, in a way, yes, Qatar, they'd have a test, then go into it. But you could take those risks there because it's flat and it's got lots of runoff. You know, it's probably one of the safest tracks on the calendar, I would imagine. I'd have to think through them. But lots of people might slide off because it can be quite dusty. But they're just going to slide off into acres of gravel. So actually, I think for a Moto3 race, the attrition rate was pretty healthy with only five DNFs. No, absolutely. As we said, Onchu made his way through the pack. I mean, disappointments, I suppose... Honda, as a manufacturer, didn't appear to have a particularly good race when you look at most of their riders. I mean, I think probably Masia was top finishing Honda. Yeah, the next one was Kaito Toba in yeah. 11th. So not great. And Suzuki, unfortunately, doing what Suzuki does, you know, being a little bit AWOL, really. I forget where he finished at the very end. I think he was 14th. Yeah. So you were going to be looking in a bit of trouble if you're on a Honda. I'm not quite sure what Romano Fanati is riding this year, but he didn't feature at all in his return <laughs> to Moto3. Really strange. Yeah, don't understand that because, I mean, the the experience, where was he? 19th, out of the points. He's riding a Honda. I barely saw him on screen all weekend long, to be honest, Martin. I mean, it was a very underwhelming return and he must be getting pretty close, I would think, to the age limit. I think he's got this season. I'm not sure if he's got another or not. You can ride in the season in which you're 27, but you have to start the season 26 or below. Yeah. So how did it end up? Well, in the final laps, really, it was just a great tussle as it came down to it between Holgado and as you mentioned David Munoz who is always you're kind of watching through your fingers a little bit with him aren't you he did yes. drop the ball uh, and have a couple of silly ones towards the end of last season so hopefully another few months under his belt and a bit more experience some of that will get ironed out Yeah, he is super aggressive I mean there's no two ways about it and Rueda looked like he was on for a podium until Diogo Moreira managed to pip him at the line Yeah, and it makes so much difference where you position the finish line with these tracks with it with any kind of decent long straight yeah you know with with Qatar it's three quarters of a kilometer down from turn 16 and so you can get some real slip streaming going on down there and you know whoever comes out the last corner first unless you're four or five bike lengths clear you ain't gonna win yes exactly (laughs) it's about halfway down wasn't it yeah is it Mizano now where it's almost they clear the last corner it's almost there they're almost on it straight away yeah so obviously that's your corner strength guys are going to do well there whereas this was interesting but yeah Moreira managed to get in but I think Rueda will be very pleased with the fourth place yeah I'm sure he would have liked to have been on the podium of course he would but yeah pretty stunning debut nevertheless so as it turned out Holgado won his first race in full-blown uh, Grand Prix Championship Moto3 also amazingly I couldn't quite get over this when they said it but also the first win in Moto3 for Tech 3 which yeah that really surprised me oh uh, yeah yeah because I mean Anshu's not he's been with them a couple of years he hasn't ever yeah. won I'm trying to think who his running mate was last year Jamma Masia was in the Akiayo squad wasn't he yes him and Holgado so I don't know who the other was uh, Adrian Fernandez in the Tech 3 squad last season oh yes because um, Raul sort of argued for his brother 
to yeah. say, you've got to give him a job if you want me to stay with KTM in MotoGP. And then he didn't stay with them anyway. A few notable missing people this year. So Adrian, well, maybe not notable, but Adrian Fernandez is one. I'm not sure where he's gone. Andre Mino has dropped out of the championship. Not sure where he's yeah, gone. Yeah, did he hit the age limit? I was having this discussion last week with Jim briefly. I mean, he's had a pretty sort of hit and miss couple of seasons. Yeah. It might just be that, you know, pressure of the younger guys coming up all the time has just sort of seen him ushered out of the door. Somebody else has came into my mind then it's disappeared from the championship. Well, Scotland's year. own Bonnie John McPhee is off the World Super Sport. He's gone. Yeah. Uh, victim of the age thing again. Yes. As always, lots of very fast young kids. Anna Kras goes in there as well. We mustn't forget that Anna's there this year yeah. again. So, yeah, so we had uh, Ruedra, as you said, came in in fourth place. Jeremy Massier, top Honda in fifth. Then we had Sasaki, who, like you say, Martin, I think over the course of the season, his experience and sort of guile, I suspect, will stand him in good stead. I mean, he is, for me, kind of championship favourite or certainly up there as one yeah. of the favourites. But I, you certainly are not going to be able to rule out the top three, Holgado. Munoz or Marrera it's really going to be a question of who stays on the most I suspect absolutely yeah in terms of other people in top 15 I mean nothing too dramatic the kind of the dramatic thing that happened in the conclusion of the race and I don't know if you saw this Martin if you were sort of skimming through it but as Holgado went over the line started to celebrate and slowed down quite dramatically and Joel Kelso kind of slightly unsighted but busy taking a tear off off his visor absolutely rear-ended Holgado threw himself over the top and I don't know how injured he is I didn't notice it at the time. Yeah, I'm not sure if Joe Kelso's injured, or I think Holgado got away with it, didn't he? He did, yeah. The bike didn't, but Holgado, for the most part, yeah. seemed to be set fairly nonplussed by the whole thing and not necessarily completely unaware. Because I mean, it was a big hit, and Kelso went over the bars and came down pretty hard. So, I mean, yes, he's injured. Whether he's injured enough to miss Argentina this weekend, that I'm not quite sure. I mean, we'll find out in a few right. days, obviously. Yes, I think it's just one of those combinations of winner slowing down, guy coming across behind. Why there should be a need to take a tear off off after you've crossed the line, yeah, I'm not weird. quite sure, but maybe he was fly splattered and he hadn't wanted to take his hand away to do it during the last lap as a breaker can't so he thought, well, I better be able to see now. And yeah. in doing so, crashed into someone. A shame for Kelso, a bit of a bittersweet mm. end to what had been a very promising start with that new team that he's with. Yeah. Hopefully he'll make a quick recovery if he's a little bit banged up. We're sort of racing through this because obviously there's a lot of MotoGP stuff to talk about and quite a few issues to talk about, I suppose, as much as the racing itself. Indeed. So let's have a quick talk on the Moto2 race. Traditionally, perhaps without being unkind, the least exciting race of the weekend. In this particular case, again, a slightly surprised person on pole position at the end of Q2. So Philip Salach grabbed the pole from Aaron Canet and wonder kid Pedro Acosta ended up third. He mm-hmm. looked quick and steady all weekend through the practice, but didn't quite nail it in Q2. Salach hit the front fairly early on. A few notable names of people that didn't do too well to start with. Sam Lowe's didn't have the best of getaways. Jake Dixon was a bit mired down in the pack, but in fairness to Jake, I must just point out that his quick lap in Q2 was cancelled because of a yellow flag, which was nothing to do with him. So I think yeah. his fastest time would have put him at that stage about sixth on yeah. the grid. So that would have helped him a great deal. Joe Roberts... Just don't know what's going on with Joe, really, from the point of view of the US listeners. He's just looked like a struggle all weekend and, again, was barely seen on screen. I did hear somewhere that he might have been ill, whether that was a factor. I think he might have had some sort of a stomach bug or something of that nature. Never really featured. The other one that kind of was a bit weird all weekend was the Boscoscura speed-up team because neither Aldega or Alonso looked to be having much fun 
on those bikes. I don't know what you make of it, Martin. No, I mean, the thing is, they're always going to suffer from the lack of data when you have two teams or two riders sharing data. Yeah. You know, I know Sam Lowe's went through it when he was with Speed Up and going right back to, I'm trying to think who it was, Davizioso's teammate got banned crashed into oh, Andrea Iannone. Andrea Iannone. When he was on speed up and he used to say, you know, we've only got me and the other, I think there were four of them in total then compared to all the Kalexes. So, you know, it's always been going to be a challenge and maybe they're just taking a wrong turn, but I mean, that's, they're two good riders. Yeah. I mean, Alonso was absolutely phenomenal last year. I know there was some controversy over him coming in when Romano Fanati got flipped really early yeah. you know we know that that boss is particularly brutal when it comes to I don't think you're working out go and if it costs me money I don't care but I was surprised at Aldegau that Aldegau that he wasn't further up and it's also worth reminding people of course Ayagura one of the you know the runner-up last year and seen as a title likely uh, broke his hand motocross riding a few weeks ago and he wasn't at the test and he wasn't at Portimao and I don't think he's going to be in Argentina he was actually physically in Portimao yeah they showed him, didn't they? He was in the pit garage. They don't know, but if he travels, it'll be because he intends to ride right. to Argentina. They suspect he probably won't, but we we wait to see. I mean, hands are obviously one of the worst things you can damage, yeah. like racing full stop, isn't it? But I was a little bit concerned to hear that that accident actually happened, as you said, quite some weeks ago. So that would indicate some nasty damage that perhaps is going to take a bit of time and is not going to help Don't forget, him. he's a Honda Asia rider, and I think they may be learning their lesson from Takanakagami last year who they either he or Honda pushed to go back and race at Mategi and it, he says now that was the worst thing he did because he's still suffering with that yeah they should have learned from Marquez's experiences over the years trying to come back too early it just it's a mugs game yeah and Ayagura strikes me as quite a career savvy wise guy I don't mean wise guy in the <laughs> slightly pejorative sense of he's a member of the mafia but I mean <laughs> wise guy as, in, as a clever lad mm. and I think just as last year he went now nah, I think I need another year in Moto2 because I want to try and win it when what he probably meant was I don't really want to move up and ride a dog could we give Marquez and Mia and uh, Rins and Nakagami a year to try and sort it out then I'll come up and steal all the glory yeah wise head on young shoulders <laughs> yeah I think he might be taking the long view I'm very much of the view without getting quite as what's the word I'm looking for perhaps I'll choose my words carefully but there are some journalists who perhaps I think overstep the mark in this particular area but I am nevertheless an advocate for riders being kind of held back a bit from their desire to race no matter what I think there are protect them from themselves from themselves exactly yeah and I think you know as you point out quite I think fairly Honda in particular have learnt that one the hard way over the last few seasons and certainly Mm. the Nakagami thing last year was shocking to me I think I described it as kind of torture porn really because you know they would insist on focusing on him taking his gloves off in the pits in Mategi last year when he had that hand injury and he shouldn't have been right and the thing was bleeding profusely every time he went out on the bike and it was just hideous to watch and has done him serious long-term damage. So I guess the question that always pops into my mind with this scenario is as much as I know motocross training is great training for the physical preparation and stuff, but I am still surprised how readily the factories allow their riders to do it because, you know, you tend to have big damaging accidents in motocross don't you and so many riders have done themselves yeah. over and because way. they're ultra competitive and they're super good 
and yeah, they may not be experienced in motocross, but they're super good motorcycle manipulators. They will try and go as fast as they can, and they don't want to be beaten by some local kid who just knows that motocross track. So he's going to go around going, yeah, I'll beat a motor two rider in it. <laughs> you know, um, the hand gestures are wa- wasted yeah, on very good. the audience because <laughs> we're audio only. That's something I'll never be able to unsee, though, Martin. No, unfortunately, yes. Me is 50 cent or 38 pence, as we should call it. In fact, it's more like 45 pence now, isn't it, with the exchange rate? Yeah, but and the other thing, I mean, talking to Moto2, Aaron Kinnett had that road accident last year. He was sneezing blood in the pit. And I was thinking, what are you doing? Not yeah. Aaron Kinnett, team. What are you doing? Allowing it. You should be saying to him, no, we are not putting your long-term health at risk by sending you out with what's clearly some kind of head injury still ongoing. And I'm not saying it's a fractured skull or concussion, but he had something going on. He was sneezing blood, for goodness sake. I think there was blood blowing out of his nose under braking when he was out on the bike at that particular round last year, Martin. I mean, in the end, he yeah. did pull out of the race, I think, because it was just I think not he possible. did, yeah. But you do have to say, what the hell is you know going on with the medical establishment that passes that rider fit to even go out uh, exactly and i think they try and give as much leeway as possible i mean dr costa used to say if the rider you know i i know the rider will want to race and will say he's fine so i just need to work out if he actually is and the main thing is will he be a, a danger to other people and that's where really they should have brought in the, the head injury protocol much earlier than they have done thank goodness they have now though so mm. And I don't think anyone can argue with that. No. One of the other talking points that, that Jim had asked us to bring up was, is anyone going to beat, or, or how is anyone going to beat Acosta? I actually found a lot of encouragement there because Connect stuck with him for an awful long time. Yes, we know this kid is phenomenally good. He's not going to win every race. Even Marquez in his absolute supremacy in, in 14, 13, 14, 16, 17, did not win every race. Yeah. He simply will not do that. Or if he does, you know, I'd be prepared to eat my shorts, uh, words. But <laughs> I thought Kanet showed a lot of maturity and you saw him towards the end. He realised, I'm not going to catch him. I need 20 points. I'm not going to try some desperate pushing over the edge. The limit is the limit, as someone said this weekend, some journalist said you know and even the best can just put a foot over it but once you jump over it you're going down and he didn't and the other thing I found greatly promising despite the somewhat lackluster qualifying and start was Tony Arbolino he looked really strong and I think he is probably my tip to run Acosta closest and I think Agura when he comes back provided there's no long-term Hinderman will be another one who will be very close to Acosta and able to give him a hard time and then he'll have a totally different challenge Acosta this year if he's leading and he's looking over his shoulder let's see how he deals with that yeah and as you say I mean Kanet is the one person that you would have figured chucking it into the gravel from second on Sunday and the fact that he didn't hopefully just shows that he's gone away had a few months off had a bit of a mental reset perhaps Um, that bike looks super cool as well that new livery on the ponds bike that looks really great yeah so yeah because Acosta is going to be hard to beat and as you say Jim kindly sent in some questions and some comments through WhatsApp last night and as you said his question was who is going to beat Acosta and Jim made the point that we absolutely do need Kanet Arbolino and Aguirre in particular up the front making Acosta's life as difficult as possible because Acosta goes into this season looking like he is capable of winning a lot of races I mean as you say Martin he's not going to win every race that's highly highly unlikely but you could easily run away with it if the others allow him to get too much time and distance so hopefully that won't yeah. happen from our point of view I mean I, I would predict it. I think Kanet will win a race this season but I think Arbolino and probably Agura will win more than him whether they can win as many as Acosta you see I think Acosta will win it or bin 
it. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm I'm underestimating his racecraft and wisdom. But if he could win 10 races and crash in the others and quite easily be beaten to the title by someone who only wins two or three, but he's always there or thereabouts on the podium. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But I mean, he certainly, I, I think it, there's absolutely no shadow of doubt. The bookies have got it right. They've got Acosta. They had Acosta at evens before the season started. I'm not particularly a betting man, but this is my one flutter I allow myself a year. <laughs> I thought there's not much point. So I mm. pinched for Agura and Arbolino, knowing that Agura wasn't turning up, but I think that's what made his odds a little bit longer. So I've put a five reach way on Arbolino and Agura in Moto2. It sounds like a reasonable bet to me. Yeah. But it's each way, so they only have to come in the top three. Yeah. It's probably damning with faint praise and and slightly unfair to say that Augusto Fernandez kind of was slow and steady to the title last year because he did win quite a few races, actually, but somewhat unspectacularly. Whereas, as you say, Martin Acosta was very much win it or bin it. Yeah. He was under intense pressure all pretty much all race from Canet. And it just seemed to me that he could just cope with that pressure and just pull out a little bit more of a lead when he needed to. But he kind of did the old adage, win it at the slowest speed possible. Yeah. And we don't know how much he had left in reserve yeah yeah for sure. and as you say lots of testing in the in the week prior that kind of meant that they were all pretty much you would expect had pretty good bike setups underneath them so that won't necessarily be the case at the coming rounds so it's too early to say isn't it after one race but it looks a bit troubling anyway the Moto2 championship with the Costa on that sort of form yeah I suspect we'll have to wait another 10 years for the Valentino Rossi okay this time I'm going to tell you what really happened autobiography <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that there were times especially when he was in his early years with Honda and then the first um, time with Yamaha where he understood that it's a show and you have to make it a show and he could have pulled away and didn't and possibly did let peeps let, I'll let someone pass now I don't think this is what happened at Catalonia in 2009 because I do think Lorenzo was on a level with him but I think earlier there were times where he'd let someone pass knowing he could take them back and it, it probably already knew where he'd be able to take them back and it made a better show maybe Acosta is in that league maybe he had so much in reserve he was like yeah I'll keep him there if I just disappear people are going to say it's boring and I'll lose popularity and he wants to build his brand you know that that's where they make a lot of their money these days yeah or maybe Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Maybe that he was absolutely hell for leather, balls out, and that's all he could do. But it was still enough. So, yeah, all power to the lad. And he seems yeah. a, a pleasant young fella. Yeah, I mean, there's a touch of the arrogant streak about him, but then you need that kind of attitude yeah. and that killer instinct, you know, deliberately running into the back of Dennis Foggia in his Moto3 title year <laughs> at that crucial last round, just getting in his head a little bit. But again, the parallel with Rossi, I suppose, is perhaps quite well-founded. That's what the top guys yeah. do. I mean, they, they get yeah. in your head and they mess with you if you let them. Indeed. The other person I just wanted to mention was uh, Manuel Gonzalez, who was one of my kind of top riders from last year, quietly going about his business and had a pretty strong race. I think he finished sixth in the end. Fifth. Uh, fifth, fifth, I beg yeah, your pardon. Yeah, just ahead of Jake Dixon. So, yeah, I mean, that's promising from that young guy. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what he does. Dixon, uh, very creditable and strong, sensible ride through to sixth from a pretty poor position on the grid for the reasons that we already mentioned. The only other one, well, a couple of other things, I suppose, in terms of the finishing order. Obviously, Acosta won with Canet behind and Arbolino, as you mentioned, came through quite strongly to finish uh, in third place. Albert Arenas down in eighth, bit of a, mm, given that he's in the IO team. Yeah, obviously someone sees promise in him. I think one of the GP riders tipped him to be champion. Um, I'm not sure if that was national 
loyalty or a bit like Jack Miller tipping Joe Kelso to win in uh, Moto3. I, I don't know. Mm. I mean, he won Moto... I remember his Moto3 title year and Arenas was really impressive. Really good racecraft. Like you said earlier, wise head on young shoulders. Yeah, not hugely impressive though. He came in the top 10, so that's good. You know, he was ahead of Sunkat Chandra, who a lot of people tipped to really push on this year. I have a few concerns about Albert Arenas. I mean, as you say, he was great in Moto3 and he is a Moto3 champion. So, I mean, that tells you plenty. But uh, I mean, in that team, with that teammate, that's a tough place to play your trade yeah. this year, I think, isn't it? I mean, I think the 125 champion thing or the Moto3 champion thing, I always remember Mike D'Amelio was a 125 champion. Never did anything in the higher classes. You yeah. know, I, I think he had a reasonable season in 250s. I don't think he ever won a race. It doesn't seem to be there's that many who flourish in every class. And when we do, we know we've got someone special, yeah. Marquez. Rossi. And I think part of the problem with that, Martin, you know, they ride these Moto3 type bikes of varying degrees and quality it's true but they ride those for so many years from sort of early teens you know that's a very familiar bike to them and you by the time you get to moto three it is hard to stand out isn't it and the ones that do like the acostas you really know that they are something special but there are plenty of moto three champions that have vanished without a trace once they got to moto two absolutely nico tarol now a team manager and of course that's going to get even more pronounced now because they've got to wait till they're 18 before they get into moto three yeah at a world level so and because because we've now got the Triumph 765s in Moto2, you know, the jump from Moto3 to Moto2 is now the biggest across the three classes. And then it's actually a bit less from Moto2 to MotoGP, albeit still significant. Yeah. But it used to be Moto3 and Moto2, when it was the Honda 600s, wasn't that big a jump. It was just a physically bigger bike with a bit more power. And then the leap to MotoGP was huge. Now, yeah, it's it's the three to two that seems to be. What's your, uh, sorry, this is not on the notes. This just come to my mind. Given what you say, and particularly with the age limit in mind, where these guys and some girls as well, that will be coming through in the years to come on the back of Anna Carrasco and so on because they're going to be getting physically even bigger by the time they're 18 is do you think there is more and more of a call for them to say bring in Moto3 as a kind of 400cc twin type deal I think it's been mooted that maybe they need something to up it and the thing is the 250 the, the, there's not really a market out in the world now I know this is not production racing this is prototype racing but for the manufacturers they want some sort of relevance and when it was 125s, they had that because we all wanted to go out and get a two-stroke 125 and thrash around and think we're, you know... Play to Blue Smoke. Buried Sheen or whoever. And God, we're showing our age. I'm showing my age there. <laughs> but there are Supersport 300 and 400. So maybe there is some validity in there. And especially with the Moto2 having gone from 600 to 765, that's in danger of getting a little bit too close to 1,000cc MotoGP. So mm. maybe there is a, an, an argument to push it up. But then I also think they don't really want much more speed at that level of experience and with that amount of scrutiny and with they're still the majority are going to be teenagers albeit 18 not 15 and 16 yeah so i don't know yeah it's an interesting point it's tricky isn't it i'd be interested to know what the listeners think because the other point that feeds into that is this i was gonna say notion it's not a notion i think it's taken as reasonable fact that the slightly more powerful bikes are likely to result in the groups getting broken up a little bit and it might see a slight reduction in the sheer number of riders in the pack, which, as we've seen in recent seasons, has become quite a dangerous situation if a rider goes down. I don't know. Yeah, and I know that's an argument against the World Supersport 300s, that they're just all together. Yeah. And this is why we've had, tragically, riders killed. The safety levels now present at nearly all racetracks. It's so rare to have a Salon at Catalonia, which is just incredibly unlucky. 
And there, but for the grace of God, we could have lost Paul Spargo this weekend, just gone. You know, he, he was hit by a following bike. But usually, as in his bike, followed him into the gravel. But usually, when we do have a fatality or really serious injury, it's hit by a bike that's so close behind you, they can't avoid you. You know, Simoncelli, Tomizawa, we know of several like that. Yep. And that's not helped by having big groups of riders where they often they haven't got anywhere to go. So... I don't know, is the honest answer. I don't know. And maybe they just have to accept that they're going to stick on these bikes and the bigger riders who are, as you say, two years older and two years bigger by then, because most kids are still growing 16 to 18. Maybe they hope that the Akiyos and the Hervé Poncherals of this world will look and say, okay, he's not winning. He's not even getting near the podium, but we know why. It's because he's six foot one and he's gangly. But on a Moto2 or especially a MotoGP bike, we think he's got what's needed and they can identify that talent. I mean, Quattarero. Do you remember our own Harry Lloyd raving about him in yeah, CEV? Yeah. He came to Moto3, really didn't do much. Wondered why he, gener- he, he warranted a move up to Moto2. I think he won one race in the wet in Moto2. And he got MotoGP right and thought, I don't understand why this kid's getting it. And then suddenly he's challenging the factory Yamahas and then his first year in the factory Yamaha, he's world champion. You're like, okay, that's why. So there are some very, very bright people looking at this who know an awful lot more than certainly I do who can can identify things. So (laughs) I think we have to have faith in them to still see Yes, these kids are going to miss out on the Moto3 title because the pocket rocket, the Danny Pedrosa size guy, is going to come in and he's got a, an inbuilt advantage. But I don't yeah. know. I think the conveyor belt through Moto3 will remain the key place where Moto2 riders come from. But I do wonder, yeah. given the bigger Moto2 bike, as you say, and the age restriction thing, I wonder if we might see a few more people doing like Fermin Aldega has and coming straight from European Moto2 into Moto2 and just sidestepping Moto3 altogether because Aldega is quite a tall kid as well and you might see a little bit more flow between the Supersport Championship and Moto2 going I was going to say yeah World Supersport would be the other possibility I'm not sure um, BSB Supersport would be seen it'd be like well if they haven't been picked up by World Supersport we're not sure they're going to make it in Moto2 but World Supersport could be a feeder as well yeah it'd be interesting to see I mean I don't stay across any of the European rounds or or, or series or the national ones other than a bit of BSB which I watch when I can but Mm. so yeah I, I don't really know who's coming through but yeah be no, I mean if I start watching the Moto3 CEV and Moto2 CEV and stuff the decree absolute will be coming through the post because I just about get away with it at the moment with the amount of stuff yeah. I watch much of my wife's annoyance so indeed um, <laughs> the other one just to mention just final thought on what we've just been talking about there going to be interested to see how Rory Skinner gets on this year because of course he's come across to Moto2 from BSB a bit like Jake yeah. Dixon did which is not yeah. a conventional route at all so no. It's going to take Rory, obviously, a bit of time to get used to the prototype chassis. Did he DNF? No, no, he did finish. He finished 22nd. Yeah. He was ahead of Jordi Torres, who was a standing rider for... Was he standing rider for Ayagura? No. Uh, no, he was standing for Ethan Guevara. Who oh, yes. damaged himself in testing. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, the only other one I think I wanted to mention was uh, Sergio Garcia came in 15th on his Moto2 debut. So that yeah. was a good result. And, well, Celestino Vietti brought it in, I think, in about 12th or 13th. But, of course, he 11th. had a double long lap. Yeah which was an overhang from Valencia last year. So he had to serve that penalty. I think it will be fascinating to see how he does. Now, Mm. some of the commentators were saying that Valentino Rossi supposedly through this winter had spent most of his time with Franco Morbidelli trying to get his head straight. No evidence that that's worked yet. But I suspect he also spent a fair bit of time with Celestine Vietti, who saw a title favourite, brilliant start to the season last year, absolutely crumble. 
I mean, it, it was beyond Alvaro Bautista in his first year at World Superbikes, where, you know, he wins the first 11 races or whatever and then just absolutely crumbled. I'd say it was worse than that because he didn't have such a good start either. Yeah. So remarkable. And and if he can bring it back from that, then all power to his elbow. Yeah, absolutely. OK, let's have a talk about MotoGP because, of course, with the sprint coming in and the whole shakeup of the schedule, plus a few odd things that happened uh, over the weekend, uh, that's kind of where a lot of the discussion... And interest has been so just very briefly on Friday uh, I mean I normally watch a bit of the Friday practice anyway I watch them religiously because it's the first day of our weekend here so oh, yeah. oh, well of course yes and given that it was the first race of the year I kind of watched the Friday so they had quite a bad power cut which kind of brought a red flag out for about half an hour I would say on the Friday afternoon yeah. and it delayed the final MotoGP practice from finishing and I think there was a bit of an issue with track temperature having dropped yeah. off quite a bit in that period now whether that was a contributor to what happened to Paul Espargaro but do you want to just talk us through I'm assuming you saw it talk us yeah. through what happened to Paul because he was very unlucky but at the same time very lucky I suppose so I can't remember exactly the turn was it turn 11 uh it was one of the top of the hill being right hand yeah yeah and he had a high side, which in itself was not the most dramatic we saw even this weekend, let alone, you know, of all time. But it flipped him in front of the bike, which then proceeded to whack him all the way across the gravel. Now, he went out of shot, thankfully, for the viewing public. I believe he hit, he made it all the way to the fence and hit it. And then the bike followed him in and hit him. He's broken his jaw. He's broken his dorsal vertebrae, but they're stable fractures. There's no instability. There's no loss of sensation in feet, legs, arms. So, you know, there's no reason to believe he, he won't make a full recovery. He had lung contusions. I think he's broken, I think, ribs. And the broken jaw can be really nasty. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, because of the head injury, they had to take a lot of time stabilising him, removing the helmet. And he was then subsequently airlifted out. So that was another delay another red flag now last year they just said right end of session because they'd have had fp3 on saturday morning to decide who goes through to q1 and q2 but because we only have the friday now p2 had to continue so they had to go back out again and a lot of riders were looking kind of really you know okay obviously if you were in p1 as in, this is going to get really confusing. Why can't we call it FP? I suppose it's not free. TP. It's not free, is it? Timed practice. Call it TP. Because P1 to me means position one. Yeah. You're first on the grid or you, you were the fastest. So anyway, so if you were the fastest, when the second red flag happened to to pole, you probably wanted them to stop it there because yes. you're going to go through to Q2. But they didn't. And they went again. Uh, and I think we escaped with any without much more incident. But it was a bit crash-tastic. I mean, Luca Marini, I think it was Simon Patterson said, Luca Marini's basically got an entire season's worth of crashes out in one weekend because yeah. he basically didn't crash last year except for it's a bang right at the end. And he had a couple of falls. In fact, a lot of people were going down at various points uh, over the weekend at various times. So basically, you've now just got Friday, those two, uh, I think it's 45 minutes, then an hour. Mm -hmm. That's it. And that decides Q1 and Q2. Yeah. And on Saturday morning, they get FP3, which I think is now called F, is still called FP, which is not timed. And that's where they, was it 30 minutes? No, it's in fact, it's just called free practice, 30 minutes. Yeah, it was 30 minutes. And it's just called free, not free practice one or free practice two. It's just free practice. And they go out for that. 
come back in 10 minutes later they're into q1 so for those riders who are doing q1 they're straight into it it's like okay you want that for that period you want your bike set up for the race but of course as a number of people have pointed out this weekend that is not the time that the race will be taking place so they used Mm -hmm. to say the thing about fp4 that they did just before the qualifying is that was pretty much the same time the afternoon that race would happen so so long as the conditions didn't change dramatically between the saturday and sunday which they usually don't you've got some good info now it's in the morning much less value that might make for more entertaining racing i was going to ask you about that actually so are you i'm sort of an advocate for less practice anyway in various forms of motorsport i mean formula one i think would benefit from this enormously i think in formula one if i could just interject there they should do away with all the practices and all the races just get rid of the whole thing and that would make me entirely happy yeah would certainly save some valuable time um (laughs) fair enough martin no no, (laughs) touche i suppose it goes to the point that Having a bit less time to set the bike up or predictable bike setup between times a day, does that make for more interesting racing or does it make for more dangerous racing or a bit probably yeah. a bit of both? I think from the rider's point of view, it makes for more unpredictable racing. And for those who expect to be near the front, it could be very annoying and frustrating and aggravating and could lead to a situation where their approach to the race is an element of self-righteous fury which is not a good thing to be going out on a grid with i don't think Mm. or maybe they're incredibly disciplined and can control that i suspect some can and some can't i I do take that point but on the evidence of this weekend it was more dangerous but then again it's a crazy track it's just unfortunate that because Formula One went to Los Angeles last year and whinged about the state of the paddocks and the pits and the offices. Uh, they've had to do a complete rebuild to make it posh enough for Formula One to feel that it's you know up to their privileged standards. You might be getting the feeling I'm not a huge fan of Formula One, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I'm not. So it means that it's not happening till November. Whereas I think we'd have had a totally different out. We might not have had a better race or better races if it was at Qatar, but I think they've been a lot safer. Yeah. Because fair enough. You're not going to hit fences because there aren't any in sort of sight, not in the same postal district as the track. I don't want to ramble on too much because I'm always conscious of time, but just going back to Poles crash on the Friday, I mean, I think there are a couple of elements of that that are worth talking about as to whether or not we might see a bit more of this. And the first point that I don't think has been made all that much, but kind of occurred to me, rightly or wrongly, is... You know, they're arriving at these corners a lot faster with these bikes and the error that they have. And what really shocked me, and you always have this impression, it's true, but I just couldn't get over it with that crash from what we saw of it with Paul Despargo was it didn't even look as if he'd gone into the corner that quick. Now, he is one of the riders that uses the rear brake quite a lot, and he basically mm-hmm. just lost the rear end on it, and it flicked him over, as you say. And he kind of hit the gravel, and you thought, well, okay, he's had a crash. And then it kind of almost increased in intensity, and you kind of always shocked by the sheer amount of energy that these bikes and riders are carrying and he god did he hit the barrier hard i mean thankfully i don't think the bike hit him i think it just missed him and thank goodness that it did otherwise it would have been a much worse result i suspect right but it wasn't an air fence that's another thing no because nobody's ever reached the barrier there before and the other thing with portimao specifically is the size of the gravel which all the riders have commented on at the test last year they commented on it they said that it's too big and it doesn't have the absorption of much smaller sized gravel. And apparently there is an FIM standard and Portimao is not reaching it. And yet they allowed the race to go ahead. Yeah. Now, that is an enormous job. I thought I heard someone say there's 150,000 tonnes of gravel in the traps around Portimao. I have no idea what that looks like. So I don't know if that's a ridiculous, if maybe it's 15,000 tonnes. Either way, it's a lot of gravel. It's a lot. And they're going to have to go in there and either replace it or 
crush it down. And I don't even know if that's feasible. My plant operating of machinery experience is zero. So I don't know, maybe there's a listener who would know about these things who could advise us. But I think there was a culmination of factors there. But this, unfortunately, you hear, especially the older journalists, the Matt Oxleys and the David Emmett's, the more experienced guys, who, and in Matt Oxley's case, who's been a professional racer, they say, we are going to lose Magello. We are going to lose Phillip Island. We are going to lose possibly even Silverstone because the speeds are just unsustainable we're going to need to build brand new racetracks that will look like the m25 because that's the speeds they're going to be going and i don't know what we do about that well we we have to slow them down yeah i mean it seems to me we're in kind of a 2006 situation at the minute where you know the authorities are going to have to step in the problem as i see it though is with aero the genie's out of the bottle now and i don't know really how you put it back in and seal the lid on it You, you you do you say you can shape your you cannot have any protuberances from the smooth exterior lines you know it, it could be done or no steps on the side fairings or yeah no protuberances oh the only gaps can be for engine cooling although i mean yamaha came up with the uh, rain diffuser ducati looked at it Gigi Delini went i know what, what else effect that's going to have and yeah. it does look like yamaha genuinely made it just as a way of getting rain off the rear tire when it was wet ducati said that's what ours is for but you're running it in a dry well it might rain anytime who's to say and actually it was yeah. cooling and acting as a as a diffuser so you know they'll find ways around it but it might not be so extreme or you just persuade michelin to make a crap tire i don't know oh, yeah. give the tire contract to hankook I said, we, we don't make bike tires. You do now. <laughs> I don't know. That should slow them down. They need to do something, though, don't they? But in 2007, they for exactly that reason, they said we're going to go to 800s. Within two or three races, they were breaking lap records. These are some of the best speed engineers with the best motorcycle racers on the planet. They will find a way to go faster because that's how you win races. So I do not know how you do it. They're going to have to do something, I think. And, and just before we move on, because we must, I just do not understand why they're not just saying, right, shapeshifters, they're gone. Because... Yeah. Clearly, they're making yep. the bikes much faster and you're arriving at the turns quicker. So yep. the threat is just extended even further without even bringing aero into the picture where they're braking later as well now. So, and that's why, as we've just said, Polder Spargo hit a fence that nobody, I don't think, on a bike has ever hit before. Just kind of increased in intensity the further the crash went on, it seemed to me. Yeah. And you just don't appreciate, certainly from the TV anyway, just the speed that these guys are going at. And as we're going to come on to in a minute, the pole lap was one and a half seconds quicker than last year. I mean, that is by any measure a lot of time gained in 12 months. And we cannot in 12 months. sustain that sort of level of improvement for much longer. And you cannot expect these 20 something want to be world champion motorcycle racers who are slightly crazy, not in a, a I don't mean that literally, but you know, they have an ability to compartmentalize fear and pain. Yeah. That does not make them objective judges of risk. Their idea of risk assessment is, can I get past and will I be black flagged if I smash someone out the way? Or can I say it was just a racing? In? You know, that they're not thinking in terms of, oh, I might hurt myself. They know they might hurt themselves and they're doing it anyway. That's always been the case. And it's so much safer than it used to be. But to maintain that level of safety, we're going to have to start losing these circuits. What I find difficult to stomach is you know race direction is it dawn or is it urter is it whoever you know the governance of the sport let's say and this is a collective discussion 
you know, they hand out long lap penalties like confetti at a wedding for the merest of indiscretions, in my view, in, in a race situation. And yet there are things that they, because they're saying it's a dangerous move, and yet there are things that they are not doing that are quite easy to implement very quickly that would make the sport much safer. And on top of that, they've got a problem with attracting people to the sport. So I don't see that going to kind of airfield type racetracks is going to help the show. We need to keep yeah. Mugello. We need to keep, you know, the classic tracks. Absolutely. We want to go back to a few of the classic tracks that have been lost for this very reason reason and to do that they must find a way to slow the bike sign because i don't know about you martin i don't give a flying monkeys if they go 10 seconds a lap slower they're still going to be going bloody fast and exciting to watch on tv and brilliant to watch from trackside a few seconds a lap makes no difference to the viewing experience in my opinion totally agree totally agree and um, one thing i would stress is though that race direction implement the rules enforce the rules yes um within the guidelines those rules and the technical regulations are decided by urta it's the race to i, I believe this is correct I, I stand to be corrected but i'm pretty sure it's actually it is the race teams and the manufacturers who decide the technical regs under the chairpersonship if you like of the FIM and Dorna. So, you know, that they, they have an input and they can say, and Race Direction or Mike Webb can say, I don't think that rule is enforceable. So you can introduce it, but I can't necessarily enforce it. Or we recommend that you look at this area. And of course, the race teams will vote for anything they think will give them an advantage. And yeah. I don't know what, I don't know if it can go through on a majority or if it has to be unanimous. I'm not sure. If there's an area where I'd worry about mentioning Formula One again, but if there's an area where I think Formula One has gone down a complete rabbit hole the same thing happens in MotoGP is that the manufacturers have far too much sway over the rules you know mm -hmm. asking them to slow their bikes down is a bit like asking the turkey to vote for Christmas at the end of the day so yeah. I think a degree of that power needs to be wrestled away I know the people that run the sport are worried that the manufacturers might leave and maybe one or two of them will but that happens over time but we need to have a sport at the end well, of the we day we can't afford to one or two more to go we've lost well, one. we've only got five as it is yes I know or it will be the Ducati Cup recent history has shown us though that if you front up to the manufacturers and I'm thinking ECUs and HRC you know yeah, sometimes yeah, there is a compromise that can be made yeah. for the overall good of the sport so yeah. I just hope that something like that comes along because that was a nasty crash strangely the team being ticked to be the next potential pullout as in Yamaha I think are probably the team who would welcome the rules being taken out of the team's hands more than anyone else because I think they view themselves they've always viewed themselves as the underdog who don't have the power and the voice of HRC and now Ducati of course when Ducati came in in the early 2000s they were the minnows but now they're very much not KTM with all the power of Red Bull behind them so I think Yamaha would probably be the ones going yeah we, we them and Aprilia would probably say yeah take it away from us you tell us what we have to do and well, we'll go and do it given the sort of perilous state that honda are at, at the minute the boardroom members might be donning their turkey costumes there as well because they might well want to see some rules getting changed at the minute who knows yeah potentially anyway yeah so moving on so friday uh, saw polisbargo in hospital and we were all very glad to hear that he was conscious he's not doesn't seem to have any long-term implications from those injuries so he should recover and we'll see him back at some stage then on Saturday, qualifying, um, and I don't think we need to go into great amount of depth because I'd imagine no. every listener saw it. But yeah, Marquez just pulled. Well, first of all, Jack Miller got himself straight into Q2, which was extraordinary. Yeah. And it was like, wow, where did that come from? And in Q1, we had Marquez and Oliveira got through. Alex Marquez just missing out from doing a double, a double brother. Uh, and then in Moto2, yeah, I mean, Marquez just 
latched onto the back of Bastianini and actually did, as predict often happens, uh, a fast lap. And, and he mugged them. And it was great to see. It was the best of Marquez. It's what he can do. Yeah. Was it? Yes, it was Bastianini, followed, wasn't it? Because Bastianini ended up six. Bagnaia and Jorge Martin were the other front row. Then Oliveira, Miller and Bastianini, Benalis, Bezecchi, Marini and Zarco, Quattrero and Espargaro. And Quattrero, I was disappointed and I expected him to be able to pull something out on the one lap because he could often do it last year. Yeah. I think they said it's only the third time in his MotoGP career he started from the fourth row. I was like, wow. Okay, I don't think they're in as much trouble as they were looking like a few weeks ago. But, well, he's not. Um, I think Franco Morbidelli very much is. But yeah. then we went to... Um, I'm not rushing ahead too quickly, am I? No, no, no. Let's talk about the sprint. I'm not that we need to set the scene for anybody. Can we call it a sprint race? It's not a race, apparently. But it is, because it, it they're no awarding points for it. <laughs> I know, it, but... it strikes me this is just a way of trying to avoid the legal trap of the riders saying... My contract, when I signed it, said I get paid per race for the points I get. Give me the money because I've got the points. And the team's going, uh, it's not actually a race. Why are you point, uh, awarding points? Yeah, you know, it's just, of course, it's a race. We all know it's a race because they're racing each other. One of the key questions that the sprint race sprint <laughs> is meant to address, Martin, is fan engagement and bringing new fans to the sport. So on the strength of Saturday, is it going to solve the perceived problem that MotoGP has? In Italy, quite possibly. And the reason for that is yes. because Sky Sports Italy very, very brilliantly, wisely streamed it live for free on YouTube, yeah. which everybody on the planet who has internet access can get on YouTube. And so if everybody were to do that, and yes, BT Sport, I'm looking at you, um, you know, whoever else runs it in the other countries, stick the sprint race on free. Don't put up the subscription saying you're getting more racing, you've got to pay more as I believe some tried, and MotoGP.com. Just say, okay, free live on Saturday. You can watch the sprint for nothing. And because it is slightly more intense, because it is a bit balls out, let's go for it, Yahoo, don't worry about tyres or fuel, it's likely to be a more engaging race, and it lasts 20, 25 minutes. So people can watch that and go, wow, oh, I might sign up. If they don't do that, it's going to make absolutely no difference, because as a number of the commentators have said, if your problem is that not enough people watch your sport, giving them more of the thing that they aren't watching isn't going to make more people watch it. Exactly. Otherwise, it seems pointless. Yeah. I don't understand why you'd even do it if you're not going to try and entice more people. Because I've not seen it advertised on national television. You know, now MotoGP with an extra race. If you're into it, you know about it. If you're not, you don't. Yeah. Not sure if we've talked about this before on the show or not, but you know, I don't. I know it varies around the world, but the resubscription price in the UK for me as an existing customer of many years was all but a couple of euro cents 200 euros I mean that is a as far as I'm concerned it's good value because I will watch the practice sessions I'll watch the qualifying sessions I'll watch a lot of the content and I'll delve into the back catalogue in terms of the archive as well for that matter but a casual person who's thinking about getting into sport is never going to spend 200 euros so why on earth don't they say look to get you interested you can pick three races this year and you can have them for free yeah forget the sprints but the sprints as you correctly say is there now and is a marketing man's dream or woman's dream to go out and get new fans but if you don't publicize it if you don't offer it to people unlike although as you correctly say sky italia did exactly that i don't see how this is going to be a solution to that particular problem 
So it's just bizarre the thought process. I mean, it's that go giving on. me more of what I love, but yeah. I loved it already. I'm going to watch it anyway. I'm going to pay my 139 pounds or whatever I pay every year. That's fine. But yeah, you're not going to bring more people in without doing something slightly different. Yeah. Anyway, the yeah. sprint race itself. So let's talk about what happened in the sprint. Because it was, yeah. I mean, for me, it was exciting to watch. Now, whether it's inherently more dangerous, I don't know, really. I mean, there are people, a couple of people that crashed or caused crashes during the race. But I personally didn't see those as anything other than fairly run-of-the-mill kind yeah. of racing type accident. The one bit of beef that I did see going on, and I think he wasn't very happy about it, was there was quite a bit of, let's say, fairing sponsorship swapping between Vinales and his teammate Alicia Spargaro towards the end of the sprint race that got a bit feisty but yeah I didn't see too much of great concern I think was that when Vinales went up the inside of Alish because I think Alish he either was taking a wider line to get drive off in the next mini straight or he ran wide and Vinales went up the inside and Alish tried to close the gap was unable to I mean Alish right he does ride with his heart on his sleeve doesn't he he does yeah. He's an emotional guy. I don't know whether we make an allowance. His brother was in hospital. But yeah, I I thought that was a bit uncharacteristic of him. But there was a, some good to and fro in it. So I think one of the commentary teams, I think Matt Burt said, you know, we, it might be that the closest race or, the, or the, the biggest fairing bashing we see here is between the two Aprilias, the two factory Aprilias. But yeah. the thing I think that surprised me a little bit was Jorge Martin, who I'm pretty sure thinks he's off to Yamaha next year, probably. Or I don't think he's, he's looking at staying at Ducati because I don't Mm. think he sees a slot on the top team coming open. And I think his nose is out of joint. He didn't get picked for it, even though Bastianini comfortably beat him in the title standings last year and won more races. Well, won races. I think Martin, because I I don't think Banya is going to expect anybody to um, show him any kind of respect. You know, maybe towards the end of the season, the Ducatis will play what they did last year and you can race him, but don't take him down. I've been stupid. But I was just surprised that Martin, he just could not find that last but I mean he, he finished 0.3 behind which is you know a significant distance but that only really opened up in the last lap or two yeah and I was just I was just waiting for him to go past and I kept thinking on the straight because he seemed to have a better hookup out of 15 and onto the straight and he just but Ben Nye is he doesn't really have a particularly weak area he may not have a particularly brilliant area it's not like he's like Dovi on the brakes or he's like Lorenzo with his corner speed he's pretty damn good everywhere there's not a weak area so I don't know how someone's going to challenge him um it'll be down to him it kind of feels even more this season than the latter half of last that it's the perfect storm now with Banyar and Ducati doesn't it and the team yeah. just the whole thing the only outlier in all of that I suppose is Bastianini but he's now injured and already quite far behind in the points through no yeah. fault of his own it must be said but so yeah. Bastianini got taken down by Luca Marini who never yeah. crashes never and crashes yet, but <laughs> yeah. the third crash of the weekend third or fourth was sadly in the sprint race and it was just front washed out and he slid and outside him was running Bastianini absolutely nothing Marini could do racing incident but Bastianini's broken his scapula which is in the era of airbags is really quite unusual mm. not collarbone he's broken his, sh- his shoulder blade shoulder, which is yeah, not yeah. a nice injury to have now I don't know if it's right or left I don't know if that would make much difference I'm guessing it must be the right because he came down I'm pretty sure he came down on the right side yeah, yeah. and most of the circuits we go to are right hand circuits so that's not great I don't know actually if shoulder blades if it has the same effect but counter steering you'd imagine you use your right more on a right 
right-hand circuit and your left. So we don't know when he's going to be back. You know, we've already lost pole for an indeterminate length of time. Quite a while, I suspect. Yeah, I would imagine so. But we only lost... Well, the other faller was Mir, wasn't it? He made a fairly ambitious move, it's true, into a kind of closing gap that Quattro had left hit Quattro whose airbag went off I don't know if you spotted that no I didn't actually no yeah, I'm pretty sure his airbag deployed as a result of that collision Mia I think went down and was out of the race at that point yeah but those were the only two big incidents I think Mia's been given a long lap penalty for Argentina I think he served it in the main race on Sunday didn't he Ah, right, right, he did, yes, yes, you're right. And yeah. Honda appealed it, and in losing the appeal, cost them €30,000 or something. Oh, really? Oh, like wow. if you appeal, and it's, I think it's to stop flippant appeals. Yeah. They always felt they had grounds, and they went, no. And I think Mir was a bit, oh, okay, but he's a very, very mature young lad, so I think he'll just take that. And yeah. But Zeki, was but Zeki all of his own doing? Yes. The other thing that, I don't know if it's a contributor to Paul Espargo's crash on Friday, but it was quite blustery all weekend. Mm. So I think Bezeki hit a bump, which he would have known was there because they were on the same line most of the time. But for whatever reason, he just lost control over a bump went down into the gravel and he was out of the sprint as well. But they were the only kind of headline things that happened, really, other than the fact that it was quite feisty and, you know, obviously a short race. Justo Fernandez didn't finish, but I th- was it a retirement? Yes, he, he had a crash? technical. I didn't see... He had a technical, OK. Yeah, so we had Bagnaia won from Martin, from Marquez, got on the podium uh, just um, from Jack Miller, who was looking like he was going to pull a podium out for KTM, which would have been remarkable. Vinales, Alicia Spargo, Oliveira, Zarco, Alex Marquez, Uh, Brad Binder 12th I was quite surprised at but then we'd heard all weekend that he's had some real neck problems Mm. um, which you know they they can be agonising just being awake and walking around so riding a MotoGP bike with neck injury uh, he just continues to amaze me how extraordinary a human being Brad Binder is then Morbidelli was 14th so he wasn't last which was good on the Saturday although of course only the first nine scored points which it transpires that and again, I'd pick this up from another commentator, but a number of the riders weren't actually aware that he didn't score points after ninth place. So yeah. I think uh, Zarco might have been one. I think Alex Marquez wasn't necessarily completely aware that he just scraped him with a point because uh, I think he got into ninth on the last lap. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Bit of a weird one, but um, I thought overall it was pretty entertaining. Was it dangerous? I didn't think it was. Is there a bit of kind of first day back at school race rustiness that might have been part of it? Possibly. We have to stress everyone had just tested there. Yeah. And it's a really unusually, well, it's, it's a unique racetrack or it's a very unusual one. I think when everyone has that much recent experience, they had two or three day test you know, depending on which class they were in. They, they've absolutely tuned their bikes to the nth degree. And then you have the race, then you have the new sprint. And it's like you said, it's first day back at school sort of nerves. I don't think that intensity will be repeated. And I think, think it'll be fascinating this weekend in Argentina where it's a much, a very different kind of track. Yeah. And, you know, we've had some really good races there before. So it'll be interesting to see. Well, that links very nicely, Martin, to one of Jim's points that he made uh, last night over the WhatsApp, which was to say that the Portimao sprint may not be totally representative as the teams have had a lot of setup time, as you just said. Let's review after Argentina and the USA. So we do need that mixture of different tracks. I mean, Argentina, there's that one really nice kind of left hand, uh, slightly uphill turn. But other than that, it's very wide open. It's pretty flat. So as you say, you can't get much more of a different track to what we've just had. So that will really help to clarify, I guess, a lot of these questions that we're throwing up here. And of course, they've had no testing time. There, so yeah, and that track 
uh, Honda Determus, I believe, is only used three or four times a year. They don't yeah. have, there's not a big enough community there to go and do many track days. So I think they have a, a couple of local races, car or bike. So it's likely to be in pretty ropey condition. They'll have to lay some rubber down. They'll have minimal testing time or, yeah. or practice time. So it, we'll go from one extreme to the other. And it'll be really interesting to see. And I hope and pray that it is a lot safer because as Jim says, um, at what stage are we going to run out of replacements? And maybe to bring people up to speed with... In fact, no, let, let's do the main race and then we'll talk about looking forward, I suppose. Yes, let's do the main race now then. So yeah, we go to Sunday. It's the same grid. The sprint doesn't affect the starting order for the main race on Sunday. That's the same across both races. And... In terms of the Sunday race, he says hurriedly looking for his notes. Well, it's a race of one incident, really, isn't it? I mean, it was certainly not as feisty an affair as the sprint, which is, I guess, partially to be expected. But Marquez was away from pole again. Fairly frantic in the first few turns, as you would expect. Yeah. Uh, at notable, Quattraro and Morbidelli had a nightmare, 15th and 20th, respectively, on the first lap. So I don't know what's yeah. going on at Yamaha. No. Um, heck of a start by Miguel Oliveira. Yes. You know, home hero. Rocket uh, ship. Launching out. We had Bangnaya and I'm trying to think who was up front with him right at the start. I think it was Jack Miller, wasn't it? Uh, Miller was up there. Uh, obviously, Jorge Martin was up the front as yeah. well with Oliveira. Vinales, of course, made a very good start. Uh, early in the race uh, very few laps in Marquez decided he was going to try and get past Jorge Martin and I must admit when I first saw it and I'm sure again everyone listening to this has seen the race it looked to me like either he did the classic I've made my braking now I'm going to let off ease past him block past him going maybe he was blinded to Oliveira the other side of Martin or his brakes failed because he seemed to be braking with them and then Especially when you watch the the shot that's looking back at them approaching that camera, he seems to accelerate or relatively accelerate and absolutely cannons into Martin, who amazingly stays on, although he dropped down to, I think, 17th or 18th by the time, because it's early laps, everyone's fairly bunched up. And Oliveira went down. Marquez went down. Marquez has broken his hand, and we now know will not be at uh, in Argentina. Yeah. And Oliveira today announced that he also will not be travelling to Argentina because he has. I think I don't think he's got broken bones, but he has severe contusions of the right leg. And I mean, Martin said afterwards, "What is it with Marquez? That's twice he's ruined races of mine. I've never ruined one of his, and yet I've had." penalties the same level as he gets yeah I don't knock people off that's just you know I've been a bit reckless at times I suppose he probably has taken people off but you know yeah we'll get into that no doubt so they were all out they were uh, well Martin was effectively out even though he made his way back up to oh no that's right then he then he crashed out again he did crash out later on yeah Yeah. it must be said that he also picked up broken toe as a result of Marquez hitting him on the way through I think some people were suggesting that Martin might have damaged his foot when he crashed out later in the race, but no, he's saying that that afflicted him, basically. Well, I think HRC initially denied that. He said, no, Marquez's bike did not hit Martin. He just hit his bike. And actually, no, he did. He did hit him. He did hit him quite hard as well. I I don't know where we start in picking the bones out of all this, Martin, because, I mean, I'm not one of these kind of rabid sort of Marquez fans. I've never been a rabid anybody fan, really. No. Is he the best of his generation? I think undoubtedly, yes. But I think over the course of the Portimao weekend, we saw the best and the worst of the guy, really. Brilliant in qualifying to do what he did. Reasonably controlled in the sprint. A little bit lucky to pick up third because, of course, Oliveira got caught out by a gust of wind on the last lap and that kind of dropped him back. Otherwise, Oliveira, I think, would have made it onto the podium. But anyway, 
setting that to one yeah. side. And then on Sunday, I don't know, there's a sort of there's a sort of myopia that seems to descend on the guy on a bike that we all know and he presumably knows is not the equal of the machinery around him. I think that's not too contentious to say at the moment. That's just where HRC find themselves. And I don't think he had a brake failure. He has said that he did lock the front, but yeah. because he's having to ride that thing so hard to stay up with the other bikes, and it's because of his skill that most of the time he makes it work. But if it goes wrong, it goes wrong bad. And he does have a, yeah. I'm afraid, a history of causing quite big accidents by being out of control, overriding. And I, that's, I'm just saying it as I see it, I think that's what happened on Sunday, really. And it was the, the side of Mark Marquez, which is not great. And he has damaged himself a lot over the years for this reason. Yeah. And unfortunately, he took a lot of other people out. I think initial reactions can be really, oh my God, he's done it again. And he's had a long career now. Marquez is 30. You know, he's been in our consciousness for 14, 15 years. So he's been around a long time. And you immediately think of all the other times where he's cannoned into people, you know, smashing into people on warm down laps. Yes. <laughs> you know, the reason we know he can win from the back of the grid is because we've seen him do it when he's been sent to the back of the grid as a penalty for riding like an idiot. Having said that, he is having to override that bike. And it's only his genius that allows him to do it and get any kind of result and any expectation of result. And yes, it's his ego that's driving him. But without that ego, we would have never seen Mark Marquez in a championship. We'd have never heard of him. So you can't take that competitiveness away or he's not a racer anymore. And the other thing is, I think that is different. We've seen anger and defiance and truculent behavior from him before as a youth. And he's not. He's, he's quite a mature guy now. And he was so contrite. Now, they I haven't seen it, but I do know listening to some of the journalists who attended his press conference an hour or two later said he was almost in tears. He's absolutely remorseful, aware. Now, if that leads to a change of behavior, then all power to his elbow. He's made a dreadful mistake and he's ruined. Miguel Oliveira will only have one home race this year. You know, we're not going to Estoril. We're only at Portimao. So he's ruined that for that guy. Jorge Martin could have started with, you know, potentially a win after the promise of the sprint race. And he's taken that away. For what? Did he really think he was going to... He came for an awful long way back. It was an absolute carbon copy of Darren Binder's move on Foggia in the Moto3 yeah. race a few years ago. When he yeah, took last uh, year before last, yeah, 2021. Yeah. Almost exactly the same crash, albeit much faster. I think what's different this time with Marquez is the remorse, because we haven't really seen that before. We've seen angry defiance and self-righteousness. Now, I don't think we've seen any of that this time. So, you know, I hope it doesn't lead to sourness. But then a lot of the journalists keep saying, oh, we need a, a bitter rivalry. They do because it makes them gives them headlines to it right easier. Personally, I, I don't think it's any less exciting without having Rossi Biaggi or Rossi Gibernau or Rossi Lorenzo. Do you know it's the common denominator there? Oh, Rossi Marquez, it's always Rossi. <laughs> yeah, we haven't uh, Rossi Stoner. We haven't really had one since Rossi left. So. Well, there were some interesting tweets coming out from the forty six fan clubs of around the world, and I'm thinking he doesn't even race in MotoGP anymore. Why are they getting all venal about Mark Marquez? I mean, you know, he locked the front because he had the. T- to beat Valentino. Yeah, he did. He did. That's all it was. It was a, it was a mistake. I do wonder, you know, as you say, he was straight down to the pit garage. Oliveira has accepted the apology in a very gentlemanly way as Oliveira would because that's the kind of guy that he is. Yeah. It's obviously affected him. He's out of Argentina this weekend, as, as you yeah. said. So it's a big blow. So we've lost Bastianini. Really. We've lost Oliveira. We've lost Espargaro. It looks like, and we've lost Marquez. It yeah. looks like Jorge Martin will go and will try and race. 
Uh, oh, and they have announced today that Marquez's double long lap penalty will be served at the next race in oh, which right. he enters. Okay. The only yeah. problem is I can see the other riders going, yeah, when you give him a long lap penalty or double long lap penalty, he's now going to try and cannonball his way through the entire field. And we know what happened. And he doesn't have the bike to do that anymore. I just hope that Marquez has to be a little bit, I am not going to win the title this year. I need to win races to show everybody I'm still here. And I need to win races so Honda can prove to me they can give me a bike that can win races. And then we can build on that. He What he will get this year is two very, very capable riders adding their feedback. And they are going to be already very much in tune with Ken Koachi, who came across from Suzuki, who was their team boss. He's now HRC team boss. Yes. So they are designer. So they are going to be really valuable. Yeah. And don't let me forget, just I've got a little thing about Yamaha and not having a satellite team, but we can talk about that in a bit. Well, I was going to say, the only bit of bright news on the horizon, given all of the walking wounded and people that won't be Argentinas, I suppose it does at least provide a glimmer of hope that Morbidelli might get a top 10. But I mean, because there's only going to be 18 starters uh, as things stand this weekend. And that's assuming nobody drops out through the practice and qualifying days. He was six seconds behind Augusto Fernandes. He was last. He was plum last. I don't know what's happened to Frankie Morbidelli. Uh, He seems a great kid. I cannot imagine. Now, according to people who know, the VR46 farm will find him a home if they can in the MotoGP paddock. Now, that might be Martin goes to Yamaha to replace Morbidelli. Bezeki moves up to Pramac because I'd imagine Luca Marini will stay in his brother's team. Yes. Um, unless he has an incredibly sterling season and Pramac say, no, we want him. I think he's probably got more potential in Bezeki because he seems so bright, but he may not be as quick. Mm. And then maybe Morbidelli comes into VR46. Where that leaves Celestine Vietti, even if he does really well in Moto2, I don't know, because then that becomes a closed shot. I've got to be honest, I think Morbidelli's probably his best opportunity will be going possibly to Ducati World Superbikes. To be honest, at this stage, Martin, I think if he has another... Let's say by the time we get to the other side of Kota, I think if he's still performing as he did this weekend, and which is a continuation of pretty much the entirety of last season, I do wonder whether or not the Yamaha might look to make a, a change because I just don't think they can afford yeah. to not have somebody, well, up the front. I mean, Quattro isn't up the front either, so they've got other problems. But, but they need someone who, can, who can operate on a similar level to Quattro They do. And Morbidelli looks like a test rider or a rookie compared yeah. unfortunately and much as i'd like to have seen top rack come across i think top rack is partly due to yamaha's team woes in motor gp and there's no satellite option even though of course um keenan sofwalu who is top rack rasgaliolu's manager had said factory or nothing well i don't think he's going to get that slot not when jorge martin is there a bit naffed off with ducati provenly fast yeah. and keen I think they'll take Jorge Martin and I, I can see him going to Yamaha. I can't see anyone else. I can't see Alicia Spargray dobbing out at the end of this season, maybe in the next season, but the contracts are all up for renewal at the end of this year. I think yeah. almost everyone, except Pretty much everybody. I think Brad Binder and Marquez. Well, Morbidelli was the other one that was out of step. Otherwise, I think he might have already been given the heave-ho by Yamaha. Yeah, they gave him, he's got what he got this season, hasn't he? This season. And then, yeah. then everyone else is in line. So the end of this season will be, if there's going to be mix-ups, there will be. I mean, Ducati have got eight seats to fill and they could probably fill 12. Yeah. But we don't want to see any more Ducatis on the grid. 
But the thing about Yamaha, it, what gets me is they, the impression I got, diplomat though he always is, Hervé Poncherel, I think made it fairly clear, we're leaving Yamaha after all these years because we are not treated as part of the family. We're not treated as a subdivision of the same team. We're treated as a customer. And we're given the respect a customer gets, but we're not always offered the parts we want. Yeah. So R&F come in to fill the slot in Yamaha and they have exactly the same treatment. So they go to Aprilia. And then you, you look at Ducati, Shisha Delini has all the team crew chiefs together at the end of every session and they have a conflab. He treats them all. You are all Ducati. Okay, we're Ducati Corsa. And this is Primate Ducati and this is, you know, VR46 Mooney. But they're all made to be filled part of the same family. KTM seemed to be going very much down the same route, although yep. last year was maybe a bit of a funny one with, with the riders. They had some issues with both riders. Aprilia seemed to be taking the same approach. Yeah, in World Superbikes, the impression you get is Yamaha there under Paul, uh, um, Paul Denning and the Crescent Crew, or the what used to be Crescent Crew, you know, the Patty Yamaha team, they seem very much like Ducati in MotoGP, that GTI Yamaha are treated very much as part of the family. At what stage are Yamaha MotoGP? Uh, I mean, Lynn Jarvis is not a silly man. He's a very, very astute operator. When is he going to realise you want to bring someone on board as a satellite team who's going to stay and support you? Make them feel part of the family. Give them the parts. Okay, maybe not quite the same week as the factory get. Or you do what they do with Zarko at Pramac and you use them as the test bed for the parts to see if they work. Yeah. Because everyone keeps saying, oh, yeah, Rossi's going to go back to Yamaha. No, he's not. Surely not. Not if he's going into that relationship where he's just a customer. And why would he leave the most successful bike, the best bike on the grid to go to what is arguably second worst maybe third worst if you think KTM is still struggling. Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've had this discussion with Jim on the show a lot and I was talking to Greg Haynes from Eurosport about this very topic as well in terms of how the works teams and those two respective championships treat or mistreat, if you want to use that term, their satellites. And I just think Monster Yamaha and MotoGP have fallen so far behind the sort of the perceived wisdom of how it is now best to do it, with Ducati being the ultimate model of that, where you treat yeah. your satellites like actual extensions of your own garage almost, in terms of even yeah. with, you know, factory technicians in there helping. And as you say, very noticeable on Sunday, for example, that Davide Tardozzi straight down to the Pramac garage, hugging all those guys, you know, his, his own yeah, guys now. won the race, you know, so it's a family, isn't it? Last year, he did go down to Grassini a couple of times going, right, you're going to have a word with that Bastianini <laughs> well, kid. <you> know? <laughs> yes. But Alex Marquez has been saying this. He said, we finished, it was just a practice session. Davide Tardazzi came down and gave me a hug and said, how are you finding it? Did you enjoy that? You look like you're having fun. He said, yeah. that doesn't happen. I don't think Alberto Puge ever did that to, <laughs> to him when he was at LCR. Yeah. You're absolutely right. People can accuse me of semantics, but there's a difference between a partner and a customer in, yes. in the racing sort of setup. I think Yamaha have always treated their satellites as customers and yep. Ducati treat their satellites as partners. And it's a very, very different mindset. And Yamaha, I think in the last two to three years, that difference in approach has now been exposed to such a degree that I agree with you. A year ago, I was saying, for me, it would have been a no-brainer for Rossi's VR46 team to come in as Yamaha's proper satellite. But at the minute, they're in such dire straits with the bike that you'd have to say, would Rossi or anybody else for that matter want to risk taking those bikes on? Because you're looking at a steep development path. He's not going to do that to his brother. I wouldn't have thought. Or himself. 
And he has an emotional loyalty to Yamaha. Mm. But you could see the value of that when he opened his team up and went to Ducati. Now, people argued at the time, said, well, it's only because, you know, Tectuara is still, or it might have been RNF by then, you know, yeah. the slot isn't available. Ooh, yeah, okay. I think the slot would have become available if Rossi had said, yeah, I'm in. And he very clearly wasn't. So I just think, I really hope that Yamaha sorts it out. And of course, there is... There, there are two empty grid slots available for anyone who wants to step up. Either another yeah. factory comes in, can't see. Kawasaki definitely are not going to. BMW might have dreams of it, but they're not. They're struggling in World Superbikes. I yeah, can't they, see them. They've got, other, they got other no, no one else is in a position to come in. But someone like Aspar or I, I can't think who else uh, who's been mentioned. Aspar was one yeah. who might be in a position to step up. They've been there before. Because that's Jorge well, Martinez, isn't it? Is the Aspar team? Yes. Boss, is that right? And I think he has expressed interest in having those two slots. And Leopard have in the past expressed an interest in going up. But, you know, as things stand, um, not yet, maybe. Mm. So, I mean, the race, back to the race, it didn't take that long uh, for Bang Lai to hit the front. But again, he didn't exactly have a free run. This time, it wasn't Martin who was chasing him. He took his time to work his way through, but Vinales got up there. And <laughs> my goodness, he looked like the old, well, I say the old, he looked like the occasional Vinales. The get. good Vinales, yeah. Yeah, happy, fast, you know, aggressive, but in a really, really smooth way. Wasn't he? He was riding that bike hard. I was worried he yeah. was going to bin it, actually. And he doesn't yeah. crash very much, but he was, you could see how hard he was trying. And I've got a feeling Vinales might have a good year this year now. I think the yeah. pieces have dropped into place. So fingers crossed that he does, because on his day, he is really, really good. And, you know, we need somebody that's not on a Ducati to take the fight, really. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing as well was Bezeki and Alex Marquez, who I've always had my doubts about. I just thought it took too long. And I've listened to all the people through the winter, all the, all the journalists, you know, the commentators, the guys who really do really know the paddock inside out saying, just watch out for Alex Marquez, just watch out. And wow, yeah, really nice to see because he, he does come across as a really nice kid. But yeah. when Mark used to say, wait till my kid brother gets here, he's faster than I am. And we all said, nah, well, for once, actually, yes, he is now. I think he's definitely steadier than his brother is. I think that we can say... I don't think he has the same level of talent. I'm sorry, I just don't. Not in terms of that pure. There was there was some left but... in the bucket when he was born, but <laughs> what you know, most of it had been grabbed by his greedy older brother. But he's been quick in all the tests, all the preseason. He's looked good. He was quick all yeah. over the weekend, Martin. You know, and rode strongly in the races. So he's going to have a good year, I think. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, so was Luca Marini, and and he didn't finish. I mean, Testy, he was the testing champion this winter, but it was really good to see Bezeki having crashed out of the sprint race. Sorry, I got I can't say sprint without race afterwards. <laughs> but the Steve English kept calling it the Super Bowl race. It's like, no, it's not. But no, Bezeki. And first race of the season, and he gets himself a podium, comes in third. And the usually really fast and then either fades or crashes, Johan Zarco actually did it the other way around this time. He just got faster and faster and faster. And two more laps, I think he would have been on the podium. And I thought, oh, he's going men mental. He's going mad, Zarko. He's going to crash. He's going to crash. No, he still hasn't crashed. He hasn't crashed. I was like, It would have been a harmless low side, you know, washout, kick the bike and walk off to the stomp off the bit. But no, he didn't. Kept it upright. 
And then Marquez fifth. Brad Bender and Jack Miller had a brilliant fight. Yeah. And the KTM is sixth and seventh. We just didn't see that come in, did we? We just didn't see oh, that. I was expecting 16th and 17th. All right, yeah. not 16th from Brad, but I th- Jack Miller has taken to that bike and he's gone to the only steel chassis on the entire, in the entire paddock. KTM very much do things their way. Mm. My goodness. So I'm really hopeful that they have a much, much better season than we're expecting. Yeah, and Fabio cutting a slightly forlorn figure in eighth. Not as forlorn as Alicia Spargo, I think. Not just had a terrible weekend. His brother's injury kind of helped. Yeah. But from his point of view. And then we had um, Alex Rins as the first Honda in intent. Ahead of, actually, they came in in formation, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, I mean, Rins, Mir, did serve that penalty, don't forget. So that obviously affected ah, yeah. his overall race time. But yeah, I mean, a bit like we saw towards the end of testing, those three Hondas all together and Marquez doing wonders, albeit with the downsides that come with that occasionally further up the field. But I think they're extracting about as much as they can collectively get out of the Honda at the minute, aren't they? Yeah, and just to rub salt in the wound of what we were saying earlier about Morbidelli, of course, he came in last. Yeah, although, uh, well, I think, he was he classified 14th in the end? Because Fernandes crashed very, very late on, and I think he was shown as 15th in the end, but only because nobody else... Uh, according to results here, Fernandes finished in 13th. Oh, did he? Okay. Oh, no, that's Augusto Fernandes. I'm talking about Raul Fernandes. Oh, got yes, this, sorry, yes. This great problem this year with two Fernandeses, two so- Marquezes, two Fernandeses, <laughs> and two Aspargroses. Yeah, that's true. Frankie did get two points. Because only 14 people finished. Right, okay. But he was beaten by Augusto Fernandez. Yeah. Rookie on a KTM on his first ever MotoGP race. I mean, phew. It's grim reading for those of us who've always enjoyed Franco Morbidelli, who was runner-up in yeah. 2020 to Juan Mir. It's just extraordinary. Yeah, I just don't know really quite what to make of it. And it's been going on for so long. And let's not forget some pretty pointed words at various points during last season from Lynn Jarvis as well. So yeah. this is what makes me a little bit fearful about Frankie's position. In that like you team. say, I think he's got at most six races, possibly only three or four before they announce that they've signed someone for next year and Franco needs to find another ride. Could you see them benching him mid-season though and bringing somebody else in? I wouldn't have thought so. No, because he, the sort of person they're going to bring in is going to be contesting their own. If it's Jorge Martin, he'd be like, no, thank you. I think I can win the championship with Ducati. That's what he'd be saying this week. Top rack, he'd be like, well, no, I've got a World Two Bike Championship to contest. No, I I think Morbidelli's safe for this season. I'm not so sure. Really? So who could they bring in in his place? Well, for example, if I was Jake Dixon's manager, I'd be down banging on Jarvis's door saying, hey, if you want a replacement mid-season, my boy will step up without a second hesitation. I'm not being rude to Jake Dixon. Why on earth would Yamaha take that punt when they can wait a few months, write this season off on Frankie's behalf, wait a few months and get a race winner? Yeah, I mean, I take your point. Clearly, they are going to take somebody like a Martin for 2024. I think Jake Dixon's a really, really engaging character. He comes across as a really nice guy and he's an entertaining rider to watch. But I think the only way he's getting a MotoGP ride is because of his passport and they want a British rider in the Premier class. I don't know. I just think Franco, I think they might just run out of patience and anybody might just be worth putting in. When MotoGP seats are at such a premium because there's so few. I can't see where the next British MotoGP ride is coming from. I really can't. Well, uh, yeah, we're a good few years away. I agree with you. Scott Ogden might be a slow burner and prove to be really good, but the last really credible MotoGP rally we had was Cal Crutchlow yeah. who came from World Superbikes that route just does not seem open anymore and let's be honest Cal was the first credible one really since what Barry Sheen probably I mean he was the first British winner since Barry Sheen yeah vast difference well, in uh, time James Tozen I think was a bit unfortunate and maybe had some 
bad advice, made some bad decisions that didn't make him the most popular person in the paddock. Mm. But yeah, I don't think James Jones was ever going to win a race. So yeah, I think Johnny Ray would have been a potential race winner if he'd come across 10 years ago, but he never got offered what he quite wanted. And I don't think he probably regrets it. He has said he wishes he'd pushed a little bit harder when he had the three rides for Stoner um, at Honda um, or two rides. And he did really well. But his brief was, don't smash it up. So he kind of rode conservatively, and I think. But, I mean, I can't imagine Johnny Ray with, what, six World Superbike titles is feeling that he hasn't had the success he deserves. No, I don't imagine there's too much licking of wounds going on there. But, well, it's bound to be a slight regret, isn't it? But I think, like, well, and again, I've taken this to be correct. I've certainly heard one of the sort of in-paddock journos saying before that from the Johnny Ray camp, it was a little bit like the Razgatti Ugly situation where they were sort of demanding works, kind of squads or works machinery, and it just wasn't possible at that time. No. Arguably, it was more of a thing when we're talking about Johnny Ray, because, you know, there was more disparity across the field than there is now, if you just kind of part the Yamaha question for a moment. But but no, I agree with you. I mean, where the next British ride, I mean, you mustn't be be too partisan about it, but yeah, hard to see at the moment, really, unfortunately for us. I must admit, though, I've never really follow nationalities in in riders i've never really been oh, i'm going to support him because he's british or maybe that's unpatriotic i mean i don't know but i don't see it as a nationalistic sport but when it comes to riders there's riders i like there's riders I don't like i admire all of them and i always remember when people say i don't even know why he gets on the grid uh, we did this once one season we looked everybody except alicia spargaro and eugene laverty were former world champions at some level mm-hmm. either World Superbike, World Supersport, or Moto 2, Moto 3, or 1, 2, 5, 2, 50. And Aleish, I find fascinating. The best result he ever had in the season was 12th until he came to MotoGP. Then he got 7th one year on the um, NGM Ford Racing CRT. 7th on a CRT bike. And then, of course, last year was his best ever um, when he finished. I think it was 4th in the end, wasn't it, on the Mm -hmm. Aprilia. So somebody somewhere saw the talent. That's what encourages me, that the talent spotters are there and incredibly effective. But I just think they've been told, don't look at BSB. Don't look at Australian Superbike. Don't look at Moto America because we have everyone we need in CEV. Yeah. Well, they don't really need to look anywhere else, do they? I mean, this is the point. Why would they? Yeah. Why would they go to all that trouble? Yeah. You see, I've got to be honest, and I'm not being unpatriotic. We're, you know, a global podcast. We're not a British podcast, even though you and I both happen to be Brits. I think it's more important they get an Indonesian, a Indian and more you know, like Vietnamese, Thai, Malay riders involved. Yeah, I agree. And Africans. We need African riders. We don't have a single race in Africa. We need to be going back to Kyalami, which is Grand Prix ready. At the very least, we should be racing in South Africa. I mean, because there's just yeah. no compelling argument of any sort as far no. as I can see. And we see. do we have two African that. riders across the top two paddocks in the Binder Brothers. Yeah. We need more Africans. And I think we need those more than we need... And particularly, Martin, when we have multiple races in Italy and multiple races in Spain, that for me, yeah. there's no argument about against going to somewhere like Kyalami for that reason on its own. So, yeah, hopefully that will change. And then, I mean, I'm a bit old fashioned probably like you when it comes to which riders you support. I, I kind of just go based on sort of the, I suppose, the talent, and the style of the rider on the bike and the way... I mean, this is where I am a bit old-fashioned, I suppose. The way they sort of conduct themselves, you know, yeah. off the bike. I like the guys that are a bit more humble, a bit more kind of respectful when things don't quite go as they would like them for whatever reason, whether that's the result they don't get or something that they do wrong. I mean, going back to Mark Marquez, must just pick up on a question from Jim, actually. Uh, but going back to Marquez, 
I do wonder how much the last couple of years and everything he's been through personally with his injuries and getting back to this level of fitness again fed into his degree of upset and contrition having made that mistake and it was a mistake it was nothing more it wasn't a malicious thing definitely not I mean he took himself out it was a dumb thing which from a rider of his talent and experience would surprise you doing yeah he did it but we know the reason he's riding that hard and he's Rossi and I don't care what his fans say Rossi pushed Marquez off with his foot in Sepang in 2015. That was a really, really dumb thing to do. It's like, did you think no one would notice? Yes, Marquez might have been riding in such a way that he felt he was being deliberately impeded. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but he wasn't breaking any rules. Ross, he did. So that's why he had to start the next race in the back of the grid. And as it turns out, if you look at their pace, if even, I think he qualified fourth, he'd have finished fourth because he just could not match the front three and the pace they went up. So it made no difference, but that's by the by. I was reminded of Ross chucking it up the inside of Stoner and losing the front on the Ducati in uh, Donington. Do you remember all those years ago? That was where the famous your ambition outrageous talent comment came from. That was Hareth, wasn't it? You said Donington. I beg yeah. your pardon. Yeah, that was the, I guess, your ambition outrageous talent, which apparently is quite a regular thing, but it's a, just a, a phrase that Aussies are familiar with, but I'd right. never heard it before and I just thought, oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. I used to love it when Stoner got spiky because he was so entertaining. <laughs> but he used to, there, there was spikiness in it, but there was also often an awful lot of wisdom in some of the stuff that Stoner said. And he's, I like that when he comes back now and does interviews and he's like the wise old, the wise old uncle of, <laughs> well, not that old, obviously he's still only in his thirties, I think, but the um, wise old uncle of MotoGP. Yeah. I guess he's not even 40 yet. And, and I, I'll, I'll always regret the fact we were denied Marquez versus Stoner on the same machinery. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That would but, have been something yeah. to behold, but anyway, so yeah, you've kind of taken us through, where the results landed so I suppose I just want to pick up on the question that Jim had put in so if Mark Marquez is capable of running at the front with a inverted commas crap chassis sorry HRC but I kind of guess that's where you are if Calex get it right does Mark have a chance of winning uh how do we quantify Calex getting it right I mean don't let's not forget is the chassis the problem with the bike or is it the engine or is it the combination of the chassis and the engine are calyx going to be able to tune a chassis to suit that engine or do honda need to do something different I i'm not mechanically minded enough and astute enough to be able to watch a bike and go i know what his problem is someone like simon grayfire will be able to jim would be able to have a much better shot at it than certainly i could so yeah i mean if calyx any improvement they can make in the ability of that bike to put power down effectively will make Marquez faster and he's probably a consistent top five or six rider anyway at most tracks and at some tracks and this is a, a point a few people have made Matt Burke made over the weekend or, or it might have been um, Louis Sutterby made was when we see him at Austin and Saxon Ring where he has been in the past unbeatable if he can't win there he really is in trouble if yeah. he wins there it doesn't mean he's out of trouble but it means it's not as deep as it we may otherwise have thought so we don't know and i don't know what the time frame is on this calic chassis arriving i don't know either and the worry that i'm not worried but the comment that i made a couple of shows ago which you may not have heard but you know it's not just about the chassis or just about the engine and the chassis anymore it's about the aero the whole thing has to work as a total yeah. package and the levels of downforce that we're talking about now must impose quite large 
influences or use the word stresses necessarily but certainly will influence the behavior of the chassis so yeah this is where i see hrc in so much bother because you can't just solve one problem and then move on to the next i think it was was it jim after the portimao test said that the honda aero looks like ducati aero did six or seven years ago it looks yeah. like they're just starting out on that just journey. bolted on the side yeah and it's like come on guys you know how it worked you know, so, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yes, I mean, he has every chance of winning if they can make it any better, because I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't win even as it is. And I, I noticed Jim's last, the intro music, to me, <laughs> to me, it sounded like incidental music from Star Wars. Not the main theme, not the incredibly rem- memorable one. Mm. And I can't see us humming it. But then the first time I heard David Baddiel and Skinner, Three Lions song, I thought it was utterly forgettable. And yet... Two or three listenings later, I was singing along (laughs) with it. So I don't know, but I've still got the old one on my ringtone. So I I quite like the... the, the, In fact, yeah. Shall I play it for everybody? Uh, Just for the benefit of the listeners, whilst you're finding out, I'm sure this hasn't gone unnoticed by everybody that watches the sport. But yes, uh, amid some slightly peculiar fanfare in my estimation, a new sort of theme tune that runs behind the coverage and the results and stuff emerged this weekend. So... Yeah, okay. We just got the little melody there. Yeah, okay. So that was the old one. The new one it reminded yeah. me of a Marvel film, which is yes. something that I have a particular distaste for at the best of times, but I didn't think it really did much, to be honest. It's a Hollywood composer that they oh, brought is it? Okay, in well, there we go then. So it's like, yeah, it was all right. It wasn't horrendously offensive, but it, equally it wasn't particularly memorable. And I've got to be honest, you know, they keep doing these shots of the riders looking grim that. and mysterious. I hate that. But Makes my watch them cool. really carefully. I am absolutely convinced that Maverick Vinales and Johan Zarco were on the verge of bursting out laughing. <laughs> I'd love to know. For me, I would find it hugely encouraging viewing them as humans, the riders, if I found out that it took 473 takes to get the whole paddock there because they kept getting the giggles. Because if they didn't get the giggles, maybe they just take themselves a little bit too seriously. And I'm like, it made me feel deeply uncomfortable. This is not X Factor. This is not Gladiators or Pop Idol. This is MotoGP. They don't have to do any of that to impress me with their skill and talent and courage and daring do. I see that when they ride a bike. So I personally, as a, I was going to say understated Englishman, I'm not sure I can say understated, (laughs) as someone who likes to get carried away with the exuberance of their own verbosity Englishman. um, Yeah, I cringed. I really didn't like it. Yeah, no, it didn't add anything much for me, but I'm old fashioned, I suppose. When they do it next week, just watch Zarco and the corner of his mouth. I'm absolutely convinced he's about to start laughing. I think, God bless you, my son. Well, they're required to look so sort of earnestly edgy and everything in between, aren't they? That it must be common. The lifting up of the head. Yeah. I mean, Marquez always looks, when he smiles, always looks like a joker anyway. So he's got a sinister smile. So they'd have made him look most evil just by smiling. And I'm guessing they must have done that with a green screen, some of that as well, if not all of it. So it must have been a bit odd for the riders themselves to take part in a piece of filming like that and when Elaish was walking around the trophy looking at it and I was just waiting to say no 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 there's only one L in (laughs) Elaish doing the goose thing from original Top Gun but yeah I don't know anyway prediction for the weekend I have no idea I genuinely have no idea 
I think Sasaki will win Moto3. There you go. Okay. I'm going to say Tony Arbolino is going to win Moto2, probably because I put a bit of money on him. I didn't back Sasaki, actually, um, in Moto3. I had this bet that started in 2010, and I've never managed to get rid of it. It was a friend had a, his brother's racehorse was going to Chester. So he said, open a bet 365, put a tenner on him, he'll win. So I did. And he got withdrawn a week before because the game was too soft for him. So I had this bet 365 tenner. So I lobbed it on, I think, Lorenzo, who was like decent odds, six to one or something. And of course he won 2010. Boom. So then I had 60 quid or 70 quid in the account. Days. So I keep trying to get rid of it. And I nearly did manage it one year. And I thought I'll have one football bet. And I bet Liverpool to win the Champions League. And they hadn't really had a sniff of it for two or three years. And I went and did it. So that really romped it in. And thanks to Peko Banai last year, I ended up with, okay, I've got to get rid of this again. So I've got two in each class, plus top rack, all of right. them each way, all of them very small, modest bets. You know, it's only mm-hmm. a fiver, but it's five each way. So, you know, so um, I've got 70 quid spread across the um, doodars. I must contact you later for my lottery ticket numbers with your record. From what I'm hearing, you've uh, obviously picked the winners. Oh God, no, I'm normally terrible. Mike, uh, Uper, Uper Mike, I can't remember his actual name, listener, and on Twitter, had said he, he came like first, fourth, fifth and eighth in his fantasy MotoGP. And I was like, okay, I think, what was I? I was fifth, eighth, kitty litter and med centre, medical yeah. centre. Yeah. I had a very, very poor I had response. a dis- disastrous uh, main race for me. Absolutely disastrous. Yeah. So I'm languishing down in 22nd, I think. Oh, that was one question Jim had for those playing the uh, Motorpod Mayhem Fantasy League. What happens if your riders are injured or withdrawn? Well, you have two transfers a week. Oh, it's for every race, is it? So for every race, you can oh, change. Okay. But that means two riders or one rider and change your team or manufacturer. So if you chose Marquez, Polish Bargro, Oliveira and uh, Enya Bastianini, then I'm afraid you can change two of them, but you're going to be running with two non-scorers. Yeah, so that's it. I had to make a couple of changes. Yes, I must do mine then. I wasn't sure if it was two in the season or whether it was an event. Two between every round. Gotcha, okay. And you can do that up to the beginning of Q1 on Saturday. Yes, okay. And so who's your tip for the MotoGP win on Sunday? Well, it's Saturday and Sunday, Probably, because I've just swapped Quartararo out of my fantasy team and brought Bagnaia in. Probably Quartararo, um, when Bagnaia has a puncture and or his chain comes off or something ridiculous, because I've just tipped him. I really don't know. I would not be surprised if it's Bagnaia, but I also would not be surprised if it's someone really unexpected. A Binder or a Miller or... I don't know how long-term this Brad Binder neck injury is going to take. Yeah. Bezeki could win. Jorge Martin could definitely win. Johan Zarco on that performance could possibly win. Vinales could definitely win. And don't forget, Alessio Spargo won last year. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot exactly. of people that win this weekend. Yeah. Oliveira, Bastianini, uh, Marquez and Polo Spargo are definitely not going to win. And they're the, that's about as certain as you can get because yeah. they're not going. I suppose if you were betting, you'd say Bagnaia, but then you'd get terrible odds. So you probably wouldn't. Yeah. You'd probably say, no, I'll go for, I don't know. It's hard to tell. It's. It, I don't think it's a track because of COVID. We haven't been there recently. That I think last year was the first year we'd gone back. So mm. it's not a track I feel dialed into of who it suits, who it doesn't suit, what kind of bike it suits. But I know we've had some good races there. So, Of course, last year, Martin, you might remember that the sort of competitive order was mixed up a little bit because we had that delay with the freight coming across from Indonesia 
with the way the last year's calendar yeah. was, do you remember? And so yeah. they, they didn't get Friday or all of Friday practice anyway. They missed quite no, a bit. Some of the running. teams didn't have all their kit, did they? So they cancelled. Yes. And didn't they get an extra session on Saturday? They may have got, yeah, but they lost time overall. Now, whether yeah. I'm not suggesting that that led to Alicia Spargo winning. He won fair and square, but it was one of those situations where a bit less running did sort of produce a slightly surprised result at the time. Wouldn't be such a big surprise if Alicia Spargo went out and won one of the races this weekend, but no. just just pop back into my mind as something that happened last year. I think if I had to stick my neck out, I would suggest that I think depending how injured he is, and I don't think it's going to slow him down, Jorge Martin will win the sprint if I had to stick my neck out. Mm. And if I'm just going to be a little bit contrary and move away from the Magnard, say Vinales for the main race. Yeah, I think you could be... I'd love to see that. Yeah. Because I don't want to see a runaway with Bernard at the front. I don't think that would serve anyone's interest except Pekka Bernard. He's worthy of it. If he mm. does it, he's deserved it. We have to have some really entertaining races if we're not going to have an entertaining title race. Yeah. I can stay and tense, not much actually happened races if there's a greater jeopardy with the title being really close. But of course, that only really counts later in the season when you're starting to, it's starting to fall out. And this is going to be an extraordinarily different season anyway. Yeah. Let me just give you my three then. So I'm going to go, and this is probably just me being a bit of a romanticist, but I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for Dennis Onchu in Moto3. Oh, yeah, sorry. If I'm doing Moto3, what did I say? You said Sasaki. Very good shout. Yeah. I'll go Onchu. I'm going to stick with Acosta in Moto2 just because I think he's going to romp it. I think he probably will, but yeah, I'll stick with Arbolino. Yeah. Because he's got my money in his pocket. I'm just a little bit on the fence with Martin in terms of that broken toe as to how much of an impediment that might be. Mm. As you say, we believe he's going he's going to ride um so we'll assume he's going to do it i don't know it's so hard in moto gp it's hard to see past banyar and it but i think i'll go yeah. with you with aprilia i think i'll say vinyala's in the sprint and ooh, i could see something a little bit left field like i'm going to go bezeki in the main race yeah let's see it could be anybody i could see brad binder in the main race i don't think jack was showing i think he started to fade quite markedly towards the end of the main race yeah so i'm not sure jack's going to win a full-length race but i could see him winning a sprint sometime this year yeah because he's famously not great at keeping the rear tire alive is he miller but obviously no. that's not a problem in the sprint whereas binder's the man on sunday so yeah yeah well it's all to look forward to absolutely no i'm gonna have to go because there's yeah, um, six too. cats outside the door that are threatening <laughs> to eat me if i don't put some wet food down for them soon <laughs> well martin thank you for subbing at such short notice because this was a very uh, no, always a pleasure. Always we've a talked pleasure. about having you on from time to time, uh, as, as well as some of the other ex-hosts as well from time to time. If one of us in is... my heart, I've never really left. No, of course. So um, <laughs> I'm sure that's been a great treat for all the listeners when this goes out. So thank you very much indeed, sir. Yep. We will obviously look forward to catching up with you a little bit later in the season. And um, brilliant. Yeah, let's keep in touch, and I'll be keeping an eye. On... What's your team called in Motopod Mayhem? I was trying to work out which Lasalle losers. No, I thought it must be. I thought there could only be look, you, really. But look right at the bottom. Yeah, next to Seriously, me. It is, it's right at the bottom, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Martin, once again. And um, yeah, we'll catch up with you in a few races time, maybe. Cheers, Richard. Thanks, everybody. And I look forward to hearing you and Jim pontificating after next weekend. Indeed. All right, All cheers right. for now. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.